Welcome to On the Middle East, our Monitor's weekly podcast shining a light on critical issues in the region. My name is Ambrin Zaman, and this week we will be discussing recent developments in Syria, including efforts by Egypt and the UAE to bring President Bashar Assad back into the Arab League, and Turkey's threats to mount another attack against the US-backed Syrian Democratic Forces in northeast Syria. We caught up with Ambassador Jim Jeffrey, the Trump administration's top envoy to Syria. He was in Ankara, where he was taking part in the panel, among other things. We asked him for his take on what's happening. Ambassador Jeffrey currently heads the Middle East program at the Wilson Center. So welcome to our program, Ambassador. It's really wonderful to have you. Imran, thank you for uh, inviting me to join you. So I understand that you're in Ankara right now. Um, are you helping to plan Turkey's next invasion of northeast Syria? I'm certainly not doing anything like that. A, I'm not a government official. B, I don't see any invasion of northern Syria. What I see is... Uh, uh, organizations of what we call Track 2 or some in SETA, uh, meeting with uh, Americans and others, but today primarily Americans, <clears throat> to talk about our shared interests in a stable and secure Middle East and, frankly, uh, Eurasia, because Turkey's interests in Americas, of course, are much greater than just the immediate uh, vicinity of uh, uh, Turkey. Well, that was a joke, obviously, uh, and SETA. That was such audience. a good answer, though. A pro, pro government, um, yes, it was a pro government think tank uh, in Ankara, and the ambassador was there uh, at some meeting, I guess, some panel. So, uh, but there's a lot of talk about a possible Turkish invasion, though, when I was in northeast Syria and spoke to General Maslum there, he didn't seem to think that was likely because the US and Russia were opposed to this. Do you think Turkey is likely to do something? Because when Erdogan says he'll do something, he often does. Well, we certainly saw that uh, in early October 2019, and I'll certainly never forget that. I will say, however, that um, under the current circumstances, I think that uh, President Biden and President Erdogan talked about the situation in northeast Syria. I think that they are basically in alignment. I think that, uh, uh, you know, Turkey has is a very serious security uh, threats on its southern border, everywhere from Idlib, uh, close to the uh, Mediterranean to Kandil Mountains, close to Iran, and uh, Turkey acts militarily when it feels its security is threatened. But at the moment, I don't see anything imminent. And is that because the United States and Russia have put the brakes on this? I would say that, uh, first of all, uh, I've seen the Russians try to put the brakes on Turkish action in Idlib in March 2020, and it didn't stop the Turks. I would say that Turkey is a serious country. It's able to assess its uh, uh, political military environment and make rational decisions. Well, that's certainly a very generous uh, way of uh, describing Turkish actions in some cases anyway. Uh, it's, late, it's late at night here, so therefore I'm being generous. <laughs> well, I recall when you were Syria envoy, you did laud Turkey for standing up to Russia, particularly in Idlib, as you described. However, we know that Russia killed 34 Turkish soldiers there, and then Turkey killed hundreds of Syrian regime forces, claiming that the Syrian regime was responsible, never once pointing the finger at Russia. 
So is Turkey really standing up to Russia? I would say, uh, ask the Russians. Uh, you saw their reaction to uh, the use of Turkish military equipment in the Ukraine last week. You saw their reaction, a hasty ceasefire uh, after Turkish intervention uh, in the Caucasus. You saw uh, what's going on in Libya, where we uh, have had a set of international meetings uh, based upon a new compromise uh, way forward uh, that builds on the ceasefire that was achieved only because Turkey stopped Haftar's drive supported by Russia uh, on Tripoli. Well, you seem to attribute quite a bit of agency to Turkey. And then you said that uh, President Biden and President Erdogan were in alignment, but public statements uh, from Turkey seem to suggest quite the opposite, that the United States is not really responding to Turkey's demands with regard to the YPG in particular in Syria. Uh, is, is What's your understanding of the current Turkish position on that? Does Turkey still want the United States to end its relationship with the YPG? And if it doesn't, what will Turkey do? The problem is Turkey wants the United States to remain in Syria, playing an active role, including with boots on the ground. Uh, it would very much like to see us end our relationship with the Syrian uh, Democratic Forces, also known as previously the YPG, uh, because of their PKK links. That's an understandable position on the part of Turkey. The problem is we have no way that we can keep a small number of um, U.S. forces in the midst of an area awash in Assad's troops, Russian MPs, uh, ISIS elements, and God knows who else. Uh, without some local support, and that local support is the YPG or the Syrian Democratic uh, Syrian de uh, Defense of Democratic Forces, and we've made that clear to Turkey many times since 2014. So the problem basically re remains unresolved, and therefore the risk of another Turkish incursion still exists. The problem of this difference is something we live with in the relationship. Uh, since the 17th of October 2019, we have an agreement with Turkey on its military activities in the Northeast, which calls for, we didn't use those words, but essentially a ceasefire. No forward movement. Turkey has essentially lived up to that. Uh, no forward movement on the ground with minor changes uh, on the map. Uh, as I said, it has lived up to that and we assume it will continue to live up to its agreements with us. Then why is President Erdogan threatening to invade again? And why did he publicly call for U.S. troops to leave uh, northeast Syria? Uh, the U.S. <clears throat> does not believe uh, it has received any request by the Turkish authorities to leave northeast Syria. I think for the rest of us, you have to ask, uh, you know, the Turkish government. You're a former Marine who served in Vietnam, and you're still kind of part soldier in at heart, at least that's how you come across to me. Uh, were you impressed by General Maslou and the SDF? And don't you feel kind of rotten that they think you set them up by getting them to move their forces from the border, uh, fill up their tunnels, only to have Turkey invade in 2019? Uh, I was in the Army, not the Marine Corps, but thank you anyway for that nice compliment. No, what we called the buffer zone agreement was not fully carried out by our Syrian Democratic partners uh, that gave an excuse for the Turkish military to come in. Uh, we very much regretted it and we reacted beginning with President Trump and 
Mike Pompeo and the US military by a set of steps, uh, including very strong sanctions, which led to the 17 October ceasefire agreement, which uh, ended the problem, at least for the moment. Uh, and the problem now is uh, several years old and it's been uh, for the moment, which is, as I said, two years uh, taken care of. Uh, we uh, believe that the Syrian democratic forces are a very effective counter ISIS uh, force. We have seen the very limited presence of ISIS elements in the Northeast since Raqqa was conquered uh, and the last elements along the Euphrates of Daesh were defeated uh, now some almost three years ago compared to uh, the situation in the rest of Syria where Daesh is running amok. They just uh, killed 13 of Assad's soldiers uh, in one uh, battle, I think just two days ago. So there's an ISIS problem. It isn't an ISIS problem to a significant degree in the Northeast because we have an effective fighting force that we're working with. So you do believe that US forces must remain in Northeast Syria? Uh, for two reasons. Uh, certainly their combat mission as authorized uh, by uh, Congress going back to 2001 is to continue to fight an offshoot of uh, Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State or Daesh, which, as I said, is uh, contained and deterred in the Northeast, but will come back. We've seen it before. We'll come back if you don't keep the pressure on. But, uh, you know, the truth is our troops in the Northeast and our troops in Al-Tamf in the Southeast uh, also denied terrain from uh, Assad, the Iranians and the Russians to uh, continue to destabilize the region through their presence in Syria. And in the case of Assad, through his governance of Syria, to the extent you can call it governance. So what's your understanding of the Biden administration's policy on Syria? And how, how is it different from yours, if at all? Um, they've just uh, come out with it, more or less. And it uh, involves, first of all, focusing on the eight or nine essential geostrategic results of the Syrian conflict, which in and of itself is a terrible conflict, as you know, with over now, most human rights groups believe is 650,000 people killed, namely civilians. It's a refugee and displaced persons problem that's humongous, half the population, 12 million. It's chemical weapons, the accountability for them, accountability for war crimes. It's the UN peace process that absolutely has to be advanced under UN Security Council Resolution 2254. It's uh, the Iranian long-range weapon systems, similar to those in South Lebanon that threaten Israel and our other allies, such as Jordan and uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, potentially uh, Turkey. It is uh, an effective uh, way forward in defeating Daesh in the Assad areas, which we haven't seen so far. Uh, it is finding a way to integrate the Northeast uh, into a uh, territorially integral uh, Syria. Uh, it goes on and on. And uh, the administration recognizes that. And uh, they're continuing the sanctions. They're keeping troops in place. They're supporting the UN. Um, and uh, they're uh, maintaining uh, the fight against Daesh and uh, putting a lot of emphasis on humanitarian support. I would say they're probably more relaxed than I was uh, when I had the account on uh, the kind of humanitarian assistance or what they call uh, early recovery and uh, stabilization assistance that can be provided in Assad's areas. 
uh, and they seemed to be less uh, eager uh, to impose sanctions than we were. But in general, I don't see a major deviation in terms of the overall goals and most of the tools. Uh, the diplomatic activity, be it with the Russians, be it with the Europeans, be it with the Arab League, uh, what we call the small group in the case of the Europeans and the Arab group is far less active than was the case before. And I'm not quite sure why that's so. Meanwhile, something else is happening. The UAE, Egypt, and now Jordan are reforging ties with the Assad regime, want to bring it back into the fold of the Arab League. Uh, and one of the reasons articulated for the rapprochement is concern over Iranian influence, a concern you shared, I'm sure, uh, and you've said so, but also that of Turkish encroachment. At the same time, Hakan Fidan, Turkey's spy chief, has met with his Syrian counterpart, Ali Mamluk, on several occasions. Um, what do you think Turkey is trying to do? Uh, I mean, do you envisage a scenario where Turkey could actually sort of make its peace in some shape or form with the Assad regime, uh, if only to, you know, preempt these other countries that seem to be, you know, acting against it in Syria, but also to cut a deal with the, uh, the regime before the Kurds do, for example, because that's well, something they're worried about, especially that they'll do it with the Russians and then all gang up against Turkey. First of all, uh, I don't see much progress in this Arab outreach. Uh, we first saw signs of this with the Emiratis in uh, December of 2018. Mike Pompeo spent with me in tow uh, two days in uh, the Emiratis talking with them about uh, the fact that this was a mistake. Uh, you are not going to wean the uh, Assad regime away from Iran without major change in the Assad regime by giving it nice, cuddly Sunni Arab friends because the Assad regime survives by essentially ethnically cleansing much of its Sunni Arab population. Who do you think almost 95% of those 12 million refugees and internally displaced people are? Uh, and I don't think any Arab state can hold its nose and do that for very long. Whereas the Iranians, as we see in the chaos they've created in Yemen, uh, in Lebanon, uh, tragically, and will try to create in Iraq. They don't care about populations. They don't care about economies. They don't care about uh, uh, failed states. They just want to advance their power. And thus, Assad is uh, their pal. And Assad finds the Iranians useful because he will help them do things that no Arab state would think of. The idea that uh, if he has uh, uh, people he can talk to in native Arabic, he won't need to rely on the Iranians is a crazy idea. We've made that point many <laughs> times. Now, to its credit, this administration did warn off uh, the Saudi, not the Saudi, the Emirati foreign minister from uh, uh, meeting with Assad in Damascus. But more generally, uh, it, you're right, uh, it's in the, in the minds of many of these Arab leaders, it's not clear where the administration is on uh, reaching out to Assad. Their administration, frankly, is sending mixed messages. And what about Turkey? Uh, could you uh, Turkey, uh, Turkey has major security concerns on its southern border. They involve Daesh, which aside from Iraq and Syria, has inflicted more casualties on Turks than on any other country. Uh, it includes obviously the PKK offshoots. It includes the Assad regime, which is seeking revenge against Turkey. It includes Iran and Russia, 
The last thing Turkey wants, having to deal with Iran and Russia to its east and to its north, is to have them on its uh, southern border as well. So until Turkey's security concerns are addressed in some way by some kind of resolution of this conflict, I suspect the Turks will stay on and they'll maintain uh, support for the armed uh, Syrian opposition against Assad. So you don't send any kind of nervousness in Ankara about the Kurds doing a deal with the regime with Russia's help, because that's what we're hearing. And that's one reason why they certainly want the US troops to stick around. Certainly when I was there, the Russians were constantly telling the Kurdish leadership or the Syrian Democratic Forces leadership that the Turks were about to come in and that the Russians wouldn't stop them. Uh, we saw little evidence of that after the October 2019 incursion. Uh, and then they were telling the Turks that the Syrian uh, Kurds would make some deal with Assad and uh, include, you know, form a PKK Assad front against Turkey. Again, we saw no evidence that that was happening either. A lot of this is Russian propaganda. Uh, at least it was when I was there, and from what I've heard in the last two days here in Ankara, and plus many of the other contacts I've had, I think it's simply a continuation of that Russian propaganda. Pratt McGurk once described Idlib as Al-Qaeda central, and the Biden administration's policy is to continue to treat uh, the HDS and its leader, Jolani, as terrorists. Um, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but you seem to be inclined to give the HDS sort of the benefit of the doubt, or at least that's how some people interpreted your approach. Do you really believe that Jolani is becoming more moderate as people claim? Is there any reason to believe that's what's really happening? Uh, haven't we seen this movie before of Islamists portraying themselves as moderates until they win power only to revert to their bad old ways? I mean, how do you and we, and, and, and we've seen Islamic militants uh, convert from their bad old ways to presumably uh, leaders of a nation uh, in Afghanistan in the last three months. We don't know how that movie is going to play out. No, look, uh, we have put uh, Hayat al-Sham as a uh, uh, successor movement to al-Qaeda on the terrorism list, as has the UN. Uh, but the point is, we've seen no indication that it is uh, planning international terrorist attacks. We have seen plenty of evidence that it attacks, as McGurk said, the Al-Qaeda and ISIS elements that are still in uh, Idlib and around Idlib. And we see plenty of evidence that it is an effective fighter, along with the uh, recognized Syrian uh, armed opposition against the Assad regime. Uh, when you say we treat it as a terrorist organization, we don't bomb it. Most terrorist organizations we bomb, including many in Idlib. <laughs> but that has not included uh, Hayat al-Sham, certainly not since uh, I, I was on the portfolio. Well, that's kind of tough, though, to do since they're mingled with the civilian population. How would you be able to even if you wanted to? Oh, we are quite capable. We make mistakes, obviously, as we just saw in Afghanistan. But we're quite capable, as you saw with the attack in Idlib against uh, al-Baghdadi, the Islamic State leader. We're quite capable of going in in surgical strikes and taking out these people. We've done this repeatedly in Idlib, including recently. <laughs> but your point is, we don't do this against Hayat al-Sham because we do not see it currently as threatening uh, the U.S. or our allies or partners. Well, do you see them as potential 
sort of actors on the political scene? Could there be a day when they also show up at the UN-sponsored talks or some other you know, venue where the future of Syria is being discussed and treated we, as legitimate representatives of the Syrian people? We certainly didn't. When I had the portfolio, I am pretty sure we won't see it when my successes in the Biden administration uh, continue with this portfolio. I think that uh, it is one of those things that uh, we ignore because we have, as we say, bigger or more dangerous fish to fry. And we have many of them in Syria, from Assad's chemical weapons to his uh, you know, disappearance of hundreds of thousands, to the refugees, to the barrel bombs, to the uh, uh, ISIS elements, uh, to the Hezbollah, to the long-range Iranian missiles and rockets. I mean, uh, again, the chemical weapons. Syria is full of really serious threats that we occasionally have to act militarily against. Hayat al-Sham is not one of them. My impression uh, is that you believe that the status quo in Syria will uh, persist for some time, that the balance of current balance of forces will be sustained. Is that correct? That depends on two important elements. I think the Israeli position, they will continue doing what they're doing and same with the Turks. I think that the Arabs, while they'll continue some outreach, and the Europeans some watering down of sanctions and limitations on economic assistance through, as we said, early recovery and that kind of thing. There will be no major change on the ground because the two major actors, Russia and the United States, are not going to dramatically change their position. The United States will not withdraw and will not uh, openly uh, allow Assad to uh, have a victory lap without dealing with the many problems that are geostrategic problems that have the Turks, have the uh, uh, Israelis engaged as well as us militarily in Syria and have many other countries pursuing very strong policies from uh, uh, the uh, removal from the Arab League of Syria to the European Union sanctions against the Assad regime. I just don't see a major change uh, which would be tantamount to giving a victory to Russia and Iran, who will simply repeat the destruction of a state, because that's what we see in Syria. It's what we see in the case of Iran and Lebanon, by the way. Uh, they will just do that elsewhere. So I think that uh, uh, we've got a frozen conflict now. Uh, with frozen conflicts, they can go three ways. Everybody can sit down and come to a compromise solution. That would be the best. That's what we strive for. That's what the administration says it's trying to do under the UN program. Or you can keep it frozen. That's what we're doing in the Ukraine, we hope, although the Russians are building up forces now uh, to essentially ensure that the other side doesn't win. Or you can just cave and surrender. Uh, I certainly wouldn't recommend the last course of action. And I don't think in the end we'll follow it. Well, you also know, of course, that the Turkish opposition says that it will sit down with Assad. And, it, you know, that's something they've articulated quite publicly, that they would restore full diplomatic relations with that regime. So, I mean, given the situation in Turkey, where if you were to have normal, you know, free and fairish elections, they would win. That would certainly be a game changer, wouldn't it? Um, if they win, A and any election is always a flip of the coin, so to speak. Uh, and if they actually carried out what they said their policy would be, uh, perhaps. 
but before they carry out any policy, they would be briefed by the Turkish military, they would be briefed by the uh, Turkish intelligence service, they would be briefed by the Turkish foreign ministry professionals who would lay out what the views of the Europeans, what the views of the United States, what the views of Israel, what the views of the Arab countries are, and what the risks and benefits of such a policy would be. I think at the end of those briefings, they would think twice, if not five times, before they open up uh, any kind of real change on the ground with Assad. Might they talk with Assad? Sure, as you pointed out, many intelligence—I can't confirm it—but many intelligence uh, uh, leaders talk with Syrian intelligence leaders. That's kind of the uh, the kind of small change of diplomacy in the Middle East that's gone on forever and will continue to go on forever. What are the results of it? The question is, will Turkey pull out its forces from Syria if there's a new government? I am not so sure. Well, in my private conversations with the Syrian Kurds, they, they sort of say, you know, the longer you guys stick around, the Americans, you know, the greater the chances of them somehow evolving into a Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, do you agree with that view? And do you see the chance of some kind of dialogue between them and Ankara at some point? It certainly is not the US position of policy, not the official position and not anything we have done on the ground uh, to encourage a uh, Iraqi Kurdistan and Northeast Syria or any other political solution other than the 2254 political process run by the UN. And that's what we tell our friends in the Syrian Democratic uh, Forces every time this subject is raised. And we minimize to the extent we can our relations with the civilian wing, what's called the autonomous administration of the Northeast, so we don't look like we're giving them encouragement. That at least was the policy uh, in the Trump administration. I believe it's continuing to be the policy. Uh, again, uh, Syria needs to have a fundamental change in the relationship between the government and the people. That doesn't mean a change in personalities. We've seen leaders uh, uh, change their spots before, but it, without this change, uh, we're gonna have this frozen conflict continuing. There's no way around it. So one final question, Ambassador. Um, can you share with us sort of a, a really crazy, fun or wild moment you had in Northeast Syria when you went there? something that really stuck with you? Don't tell me it was boring. No, it wasn't boring. I was struck by the fact that uh, dealing with uh, the Islamic State's most fanatic fighters, that so many of them surrendered, some 10,000 of them, uh, the vast majority Iraqi or Syrian citizens, but many of them from third countries as well. Uh, these were, of course, fighters we thought that would go down fighting with suicide vests. Instead, they surrendered, which has created a whole set of new problems, uh, uh, trying to keep them in detention and uh, uh, as healthy as possible and not breaking out. Uh, but uh, that created a huge, huge and unexpected uh, new mission for us and for uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador, for your time. I know you've had a very long day and it was really great having you with us today. Thank you, everyone. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department Correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell, I'm Al Monitor's video editor. 
Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. So here we are at the end of yet another episode of On the Middle East. We hope that you tune in next week for yet another interesting conversation. Thank you and goodbye.